Add Passion and Stir is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Uh, we're in Boston today with Tracy Chang, an amazing chef who has um, a restaurant called Pegu, which I have not been to yet, um, but we've been talking to Tracy about getting her more involved uh, in Share Our Strength, and um, she's got an amazing story and an amazing success on her hands. Um, Tracy, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Billy. Uh, and also, Glenn Lloyd, who is a food guy, in a lot of ways, although you're a banker now too, Glenn. Uh, Glenn is at Eastern Bank, where he's the executive director of the Business Equity Initiative, uh, but he's better known in Bo- better known in Boston as the uh, founder of City Fresh Foods. And we're really thrilled to have you here, uh, Glenn, particularly with your just long track record of activism on a whole range of social justice issues that have made such a big difference in this community. So thanks for being with us. Glad to be here, Billy. Um, we always want to start, and our listeners always want to start with understanding a little bit about um, how each each of you got to where you are. Um, Tracy, I had read that you uh, at one point were interested in pre-med or you were doing pre-med studies. Um, you may know this better than I, but the number of chefs who have been on Ad Passion and Stir, probably the number of chefs of general, who started out as pre-med, I can't believe it. I don't know what the connection is. I don't know if it has to do with cutting things up or measuring things. Um, and then, uh, in, invariably, um, you know, they would realize that, no, my real passion is food, or I was never happier than when I was with my grandmother in the kitchen and things like that. So tell us, um, kind of what your path was like, Tracy. Yeah. Um, ever since I was a young kid, uh, I and grew you, up, you grew up here in Lexington or in, yeah, in Lexington, in, Mass? in Lexington, Mass. Um, my grandmother had a restaurant, my maternal grandmother had a restaurant, since um, I was pretty much since I was born until I was 10. Um, And so my childhood slash childish dream was to take over that restaurant that was in Cambridge called Tokyo Restaurant, Japanese restaurant. Um, And of course, you know, my dad was a pediatrician and I also thought, oh, but, you know, everyone wants me to be a doctor one day like dad and um, and that would be great. And so, you know, this uh, dual personalities, um, yeah were kind of with me uh, <laughs> all my life until until one day, you know, I realized I was cooking a lot more than I was studying. Were you close to your grandmother? Like, were you like at the restaurant a lot and that was a big influence or? Yeah, if we weren't at the restaurant together as a family. I was very fortunate that um, my grandmother had this incredible power to gather people and she convinced her five children to all grow up within you know, five minutes, 10 minutes walking distance of each other. So I had all these cousins. And so we all grew up in the restaurant, going to the restaurant every week. If we weren't at the restaurant, then we were at my grandmother's house and we were cooking, we were eating, we were, you know, playing games. And somehow of all the cousins, all the children, I was the one that always, you know, went grocery shopping with her, uh, learned recipes, cooked with her. So and and when did it um, kind of the light bulb go off for you that I'm actually going to be doing this on my own and here's how I'm going to start. Um, a lot of my friends were that were mentors were pointing me in the direction of, you know, do something meaningful, do something that you're passionate about. And my father had always said that as well, do something meaningful. 
um, that's good for your community. And I think he realized that, you know, perhaps that might not be medicine right now. Um, and he was always very open to, oh, you know, you can always do medicine later on. <laughs> so you, you, you ran with it. I ran with it. I created this portfolio of 23 images and recipes and made this kind of mock cookbook. And I took it to Oya oh yeah, and I said, oh, well, I'm here to uh, interview for the host position. I'm not really sure what that means, but I can manage a schedule. And and by the way, I really like cooking. And I was hoping to just learn in your kitchen when I'm not scheduled to work. And so I was never scheduled as a host. <laughs> and Oya oh yeah, is a great restaurant here in Boston for those who don't know. Did that... Um... Did that take a lot of courage to show up there with your with your portfolio and say, I want to I want to be here? I think so. I mean, I even brought I had plated this matcha tiramisu and I had I had brought it in these like glass martini glasses and 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 I had no idea what I was getting into. Like, I did not know what, you know, it meant to do a stage. I didn't know what it meant to cut a brunoise and all of those terms, you know, came to me in the first weeks immediately all right, well, just quickly before we go to Glenn, what does it mean to do a stage for those who don't know or to cut a br brunoise, was it? Because uh, I, I know the former, I don't know the latter. Yeah, so what's interesting about the restaurant industry that's quite different from many other industries, as I'm told, is a stage is a trial. Um, you spend a few hours, you spend a day, a stage could last a few months. So I staged and... Um, and then they invited me back to continue that stage for several months. And it comes from a French word, stagiaire. And brunoise is also a French word for the uh, knife cut. It's a perfect cube varying in sizes, but usually, you know, between two millimeters to maybe, maybe a centimeter. So it's a very small knife cut, but a perfect cube. Glenn, am I the only guy in the room who didn't know this or help me out here? Did you know this? I was lost a long time ago. Okay, thank you. And I went... <laughs> <laughs> so Glenn, you're a food guy in a different kind of way, but uh, what, what, what role or influence did food play for you when you were young and how did you end up starting something as, as powerful as City Fresh Food? Well, let me just, I just want to set the record straight, Billy, because you, in your intro, you mentioned me as a banker. So I just want to make sure that we get, we kind of clear that air. <laughs> I am, a, I'm working at a foundation within a bank. Within a bank. Yeah, actually, I came to this more from a, um, you know, kind of community uh, resilience or kind of community activist kind of uh, place. And so I literally, when I graduated from college, I went down and did Teach for America. Well, actually, one of the first kind of you know one of the first cores inaugural inaugural cores, correct? The guinea pigs. This was in Louisiana. Yeah, it was in Louisiana, mm -hmm. correct? And uh, and it was it was it was one of those kind of life kind of aha moments when I, I realized, oh, you know, we you know we of uh, need to really think about the sustainability and the health of the community, the holistic you know the communities that we're kind of working with, you know, the, our urban communities. And I I got very interested in food from that perspective, saying from a from a a self-sufficiency point of view. And so I really didn't know about that. And I, at that, that time too, I remember in the, in the late 80s, when I aged myself, but there was a Globe article around the uh, global fish supply. And I remember reading it intensely saying, oh, this is kind of interesting where we're, we're harvesting the stuff out of the ocean faster than the ocean could reproduce. So it was kind of this combination of, of stuff around understanding the larger system has its issues, but also it, the, how it impacts our communities around where we sit kind of in the power structure. So that was kind of my... Um, my first interest in the food and then came back to Boston and literally started a food service company. 
Well, let me just ask you to just go back a little bit like Tracy did as we got to hear about her dad and her grandmother. Where did the activism come on, on your side? Was that something uh, in the family or did you find it on your own? Yeah, m- probably more on my own, I think, you know, just, you know, being a reader and just being aware, as aware as possible as a young person of what, how, you know, how, what was happening in the, in the broader sense. Um, I remember reading the book Sid Arthur when I was in high school uh-huh. and I kind of opened my eyes, oh, you know, here he went out <laughs> and discovered so many things and he came back. It's supposed to be kind of a biography, autobiography around the Buddha, right? And so it came came to a sense of uh, understanding and peace. I don't know if you know that book, Tracy, like when Glenn and I were growing up, that was, uh, and I'm older than all of you, but uh, probably put together, but that was like a big book, right? It was Herman a big Hesse. book, yeah, yeah. One of those formatives. And, and look, at my folks, um, they grew up in the in the community and moved out. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up in the suburbs. So I had this kind of different lifestyle, but my, my grand folks and my uncles and aunts were still back in the community. And, wh- and where did you grow up? I grew up in Sharon, actually. Okay, in Sharon, yeah. uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, um, but my grandmother was still in the neighborhood, my uncle. So so when I went to BU, I went to Boston University, and I, uh, I, was, I had this affinity with what, what was happening in my community. And I remember that was also a time where there's a lot of violence. I mean, this is the, the height of the crack epidemic, and so there's a lot of deaths happening. And, and I remember I was listening to my I listened to WILD on my AM, you know, station, and just like, what is going on? And and, and that was also part of my, you know, I'm, I'm living a life over here, but this, it's simultaneously there's there's a lot of hurt happening from my my folks community. So I've always had that kind of affinity, and what what can we do? And um, how did that lead to? City Fresh Food, what was the kind of the catalyst for you? Well, it was a combination. It was a combination of um, this thing around how do we get more folks uh, tied to some of the basic, you know, providing some of the basic necessities around food. Uh, and, and we were looking at all the way down to the food supply. And at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's economic, you know, it's an economic development play. And so I was also very keen that a lot of the folks doing work in, in, the, in the neighborhoods were nonprofits, right? And they're not wealth-building institutions, right? And no offense. <laughs> so we were thinking, well, how do we create equity from a business and you know, an employment point of view? So that's kind of like, it was a combination of what led me into it. So can we create more sustainable practices and so sort of how we look at food and, and healthy food to the community? At the same time, it's community empowerment through ownership and equity. Tracy, as you were progressing with your passion, you had the opportunity to uh, study in some pretty amazing places, Paris and Spain. Tell us a little bit about that. After I graduated from Boston College, I had worked at Oya for then a year or so, and I realized that if I wanted to learn more, I had to get out of the comfort zone. And I'd always grown up here, studied abroad in China for a year and lived in Beijing. But I realized I needed to go somewhere where I didn't know anyone and I didn't really speak the language and I had to probably endure some, you know, yelling. You were just doing like one gutsy thing after another. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because Oya was a very... It was a very nice kitchen. People were nice. And it's not that there wasn't any pressure, but, you know, it was going to be as hard as you really pushed yourself. I also wanted that kind of exterior, like someone to have really high expectations of me and, um, you know, understand what it, what it's like to work in a three-star Michelin restaurant. So that led me to study pastry in Paris and only had one year of intensive French under my belt. I knew no one in Paris. And it was great. It was it was an intensive program. It was intended to be at least nine hours a day, uh, six days a week, and everything you were supposed to learn in three months, you would learn in one month. Give us like what a day in the life looked like. 
Yeah, so I actually ended up doing this program twice. Um, so two intensive months, non-consecutively, but it is the Intensive Pastry Certificate Program at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. And this was before Le Cordon Bleu had expanded uh, as they have now to the other side of the Seine with you know incredible facilities, et cetera. But this was the original Le Cordon Bleu that uh, Giada, De Laurentiis, Ming Tsai, Julia Child um, had all uh, attended. And that was why I wanted to go there. Um, a day in the life there of an intensive program involves um, both demonstration lecture as well as practical, um, where you have to create the dishes that the chefs just showed you how to do. So pretty much you spend, you know, one and a half hours in classroom and then you spend another one and a half hours making the dishes. And all you have to go off of is what that chef just did in the first one and a half hours. You have to recreate during your practicum. And you get judged, you get scored, and that score all ends up building up over over that one month course and and you get ranked in your class. And that's pretty intense because I grew up in a high school that did not have class rank. And that weighted GPA was a controversy when I was there. And everyone was it was a very competitive high school where, you know, everyone goes to Harvard, MIT and you know, Ivy League schools and gets straight A's. Having class rank and being able to absorb information and being shown something one time and having to reproduce it as perfectly as a chef had done, as well as present it because presentation was very important to them, more so than flavor. And that was always one of my greatest challenges because I love flavor. And I think presentation is, you know, just so, so like I'm, I'm so, so at a presentation. So it was quite a challenge uh, for me and, and, and a good challenge. And it was the perfect program for me because I wasn't sure yet if this was something that I wanted to continue as a career because everyone told me that it wasn't a viable career. They said, oh, this is just your hobby and you're exploring your hobby while you, you know, like really find yourself and then, you know, do your consulting career. Because I ended up studying finance at Boston College after, you know, dropping the pre-med because it was practical. And so they said, well, you know, the banks aren't doing so well right now, but you can always go into consulting. There's always a job for someone who, you know, understands math and spreadsheets and, you know, case studies and business. But my passion just grew even more in Europe. And and you went from Paris to Spain. Is that right? Yeah, I, I found this scholarship uh, to work in a three-star restaurant in Spain for a chef who's got probably the most convoluted last name, Martin Berasategui. But Martin Berasategui, he has uh, three Michelin stars. He has the most Michelin stars of any Spanish chef. And so my goal was to go work with Martin and for Martin to know my name and to be calling my phone. So when I arrived, I realized there's competition. There's, you know, 60 other people in the kitchen and I was just a stage and I wanted to to stand out, but I also wanted to figure out what it was that he needed. So, you know, I kind of realized that there were some some gaps in the system or opportunities. And I was the only one that uh, spoke English fluently, spoke Spanish decently, and some French, some Japanese, some and Mandarin quite well. And so whenever phone calls came in, they had this archaic system of reservations where it's just one big book and a pencil. Phone calls would get redirected from the dining room to the kitchen and I would take a call. 
and I would uh, I would help out with anything like that. That eventually evolved into not just you know helping with reservations, but I got to help with his TV show. He filmed every week at least four to five episodes. Those are pretty intense photo shoots. We did at least one major photo shoot a week, and those were all day photo shoots that you have to get it right. Like there is no time for error. I had started out as a stage, kind of like most stages start at Martine, where. Um, you pick parsley, you chop onions, uh, you make stock, you, um, you know, later on learn, uh, progress to be a line cook and are trusted with dishes and um, that make it to the dining room. Um, but what I wanted to do extra to add value was anything else I could contribute in um, areas that were actually not cooking. Um, and so that was photography, that was video production, that was editing. Um, Martine traveled quite a bit uh, throughout the year to give presentations, and I was in charge of putting those presentations together. So I ended up traveling with Martine quite a bit. And anytime um, he had a presentation, I was present. So I was working essentially seven days a week traveling with him. And, you know, what started as a stage for maybe three to six months in a scholarship program turned into a full-time job offer three months in um, to do everything else. And you, he... You, you make yourself <laughs> indispensable, Well, he didn't, he didn't have a good... Uh, whenever he introduced me to folks, he called me la mano derecha, so my right hand. So I guess that was my, my uh, job title. <laughs> Glenn, we were talking about... When you were talking about activism, um, I was thinking about a conversation I just had uh, yesterday, we just came back from the Rio Grande Valley, and um, some of, one of the folks that we were talking to down there was saying that um, he was very active in food programs, and he was saying that uh, food is a prism through which you can see refracted so many of the issues that uh, impact our society. It affects our health. It affects our education. Uh, it affects our environment, certainly, and our sustainability. Tell us about some of the factors that led to City Fresh Food and, and the kind of issues you hope it addresses, I guess, in particular. And But start by telling us, what is it, City Fresh Food? Yeah, City Fresh Food is a food service company, kind of, you know, we are, we're small, we're local compared to the most of the folks in this space, which is the bigger, you know, the Compasses, the Aramex, uh, you know, the multi-billion internationals, um, Sodexo, I should, I should say. So we actually entered in through elder services. So we, we started with Meals on Wheels. Uh, so folks probably know that that term. And what we found is there was really not a lot of people even nationally doing the ethnic. You know, it was, we, we had a lot of, we have a lot of Latino population here in Boston. So these are elders who actually grew up on their food. <laughs> and yet, and yet, you know, they're getting the, the, the boiled potatoes. <laughs> we brought in, uh, you know, the rice and beans and, the, you know, and the yuca and all that. And so it was a big hit. So more culturally customized. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I think probably one of the first in the nation to do it, actually. Um, more, a lot more folks are doing it now, which is great. And then that, it, once we were doing that, it, we backed our way into uh, school systems and child care, which is a whole broader. I know that's been a, a big focus uh, of Share Strength over the years. And so how do we fresher local food, healthier food, you know, in the system? Because, you know, the, folks in the know can see, you know, there's a lot of processed foods and you know, high sodium. And part of the challenge is because you're, you know, you get like a dollar to spend per meal <laughs> or right, less, right? right? So how do you do it in a way in which it's fresh, it's healthier, it's local, it's tastier, and it's also within the the frame. And you also have all these, you know, kind of the regulations on what has to go into each meal. 
So that was the the general gist of us kind of starting out. And you, as you can imagine, it took us a long time to get to break even. <laughs> I mean, it's really it's a it's a public. It's a lot of ways it's a public service. We always push for hey, there, we should be spending more money in this space because this is probably one of the most important things that can happen for these kids during the day. Is they're you know especially on the school side, it's, it's where they're getting their nutrients in a lot of ways. And, and in a way, you're you're kind of filling a gap that the traditional markets have failed at. Right, the traditional economic markets or the tr traditional political markets, which I think is one of the reasons it takes a lot of time to get to break even. It is a volume business, and I think you know the commissary way to go about it. I think we've shown that you can get there, and without jeopardizing so much the quality and, and the health. Uh, so we're proud of how far we've come. What's the size of it now? What's the scale of it now? Uh, so it's uh, we're doing I think around ten thousand meals a day. Ten thousand a day. Yeah, it's pretty pretty remarkable, and we're delivering a lot of those meals to the doorstep. So it's a it's highly logistical a company, nine million in sales, that type of thing, one hundred employees. Uh, so it's a good size. But I, I should say, you know, this is a, you know, I, my brethren over here, the, the local independents, uh, we're one of the few left where a lot of this has been bought up and it's, it's the bigger companies that are in this space uh, who don't have so much a connection to the community as much and, you know, that, that type of thing. So uh, we're proud to be still out there kind of fighting the good fight. Do other communities around the country have a uh, something similar to City Fresh Foods or or have they been overtaken by the by the, uh, uh, the, the big companies there's still a few one-offs out there okay <laughs> but, but a lot of i mean i mean sodexo is the largest supplier of meals to our kids i'll say our kids in the urban setting mm -hmm. uh, throughout the country and um and, and they look at and they're also trying to do their best work i think i've been hearing more and more good things about them tracy i want to connect your restaurants to some of the things that glenn was talking about uh first of all you've got two restaurants now right uh, one restaurant. One We're restaurant. Two years Pego. old. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So wait, what was um, Gucci Midnight Ramen? So Gucci's Midnight Ramen was the pop-up that I started. Oh, it was a pop-up. Okay. Yeah. So I started that after I returned from Europe. So I returned because I got a phone call one day when I was on my way to work uh, in, to Martine's restaurant. And my mom told me not to panic, but that my dad was going to be okay. And I was like, what mm. are you talking about? What do you mm. mean? Why didn't you tell us? He had this upper um, GI pain, and it turned out that he had to have his gallbladder removed. They, you know, caught it very early on, but it was uh, it was gallbladder cancer, and so that had never happened before in my family that someone got sick with cancer, and especially someone as young and as healthy as my father. So I came home immediately, and I cooked for him. I took care of him. He had lost about. 15, 20 pounds. He doesn't have that many pounds to lose. He's the healthiest, fittest guy that I knew. And so I was cooking for about a month. And after a month, he went back to work and he was pretty much back to normal, except that he was missing a gallbladder. And so that was probably a quite a pivotal uh, moment for me because it made me realize that, you know, maybe I'm not going to continue staging, working in Europe or, you know, continuing to work throughout all these great restaurants in the world, like I had originally planned to gain all of that experience, but there's a lot of work to be done at home. It made me really value nutrition and, you know, not just cooking the fanciest, most beautiful, you know, plate of food or more avant-garde style, but definitely very homey, nutritious, uh, soul-satisfying, very nourishing food. And so at that time, I had gone from working 60 hours, 80 hours to, you know, taking care of my dad. I was kind of bored. 
<laughs> or I was just used to doing so many things. And so that's how I accidentally started this ramen pop-up. So you did the pop-up, okay. Um, because my uh, former coworkers at Boya at that time, they said, hey, why don't we make some noodles? Oh, there aren't, you know, there's not enough ramen in town. And so we just started, you know, kind of noodling around and our friends invited us, uh, you know, via... Is that where no the term noodling around comes from? I think so. <laughs> there's also a term called ramen profitable. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that's how Gucci's Midnight Ramen originally started. We wanted to create ramen and feed our friends in the community, meaning our restaurant friends that were hungry at midnight. And that turned into, oh, all these other people also would like ramen. And, you know, Instagram and Twitter were just starting at the time. Momofuku had just gotten a lot of press in New York. And Boston was kind of hungry for their version of Momofuku or ramen or whatever it was, right? Like there wasn't easy access in every community, every town, every corner to get a bowl of ramen. And there's something very comforting about a bowl of ramen. And so that's what we realized. And I did that. That led to a lot of, you know, catering, private events and other kind of um, private cooking opportunities, which I did for about four or five years before finding a home for Pagu, which I was developing all this time and more so just honing what my vision also purpose was with Pagu. Why did I want to serve the community and why did I want to belong in Cambridge. So tell us a little bit about the experience that you hope a guest will have at Pagu. What, what, uh, you know, like viscerally, what emotion or sensation do they walk out of there with? As a chef, that starts with the food. So ultimately, I hope the food is delicious. We want to be here for the long run. And that means we need to listen to our community, be actively involved and so we really take to heart, I mean, now we're going into year three, we really take to heart the feedback that we receive from folks about the things that we're offering on the menu, the guest experience, um, especially any negative feedback. Glenn, uh, the tenants that uh, Tracy just des described, food, community, and collaboration, uh, those could be your tenants as well for uh, all intents and purposes in terms of what you do. And I described you at the beginning as a banker and you corrected me, I, sh I should have said you're a guy that makes the banks look good uh, <laughs> I'll take that. because um, you're doing some great work with Eastern Bank, particularly uh, running something called the Business Equity Initiative. Um, tell us about it and tell us about the foundation and what you're accomplishing there. Yeah, no, very quickly, um, you know, Eastern Bank is a great bank. It's a mutual bank, so they have a little more flexibility of what they do with their profits, basically. Mm -hmm. And they, they decided to commit X amount of dollars into helping scale up um, uh, minority businesses. And so we've kind of narrowed that to, to black and Latino, uh, where the wealth gap is greatest. And so that's kind of what I've been mandated to do and help design this initiative to help, really help support these companies going to grow. You find them or they find you? Uh, and now it's a combination. Okay. Initially, I had to go find them. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, being in the space for a little bit, and a lot of my colleagues and you know folks I've worked with over time, and I did I did a stint uh, running a, an investment fund, so I, I, I've kind of been in the space a little bit. But now word's getting out. We, we're only uh, all, I'm a year and a half of programmatic, uh, you know, uh, tenure. But um, you know, we what we do, Billy, is we embed advisors, you know, who have, who have experience of growing companies. They work with these these entrepreneurs. We provide infrastructure kind of subsidy, and then we also have growth capital, and then we've also worked with the uh, the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce on their membership to buy more products and services from these companies. So it's a it's a it's a it's an ecosystem community approach to really help supporting 
you know, really an entrepreneurial class that's necessary for their communities, right? I mean, you know, um, you know, they, uh, these entrepreneurs give back in a lot of ways, not just jobs. You know, they're they're you know they're they're civically engaged, and so um, we think that's an important um, mission, and uh, and that's yeah. So that's what I'm doing over there. And, uh, is there a success story that stands out? You said it's only been a year and a half, so it's not that long programmatically, but um, what do you feel best about in terms of some of the investments you've made? Yeah, well, we're, I mean, on the on the growth fund side, we did, I may mention that we have growth capital. We just did our fourth approved investment, so over a million now out. Um, you know, one particular company that we're investing in, he brought in a new uh, COO, CFO. Uh, he reached in his pocket to kind of like, you know, get a really good hire there and uh, cost him some money. So he needed some some capital to help support that. We felt good about that. And then he got a, he got a deal with uh, Tufts Health Center, actually. To, he, he's a cleaning company. So he's now, it's like a two, three million dollar contract. We helped facilitate that through this ecosystem. So, and he, and here's a company that he's at 10 or 11 million now. If we can get up to, you know, 15, 20 million, that's going to mean literally a hundred more good jobs, you know, right. So you're creating jobs, right. Which has a ripple effect, which at the end of the day is going to be good for Tracy's business and everybody's business. Right. Uh, and how many investments will you make on a, on an annual basis? Uh, the fund itself, uh, which is kind of a part, separate part of the ecosystem, uh, probably, you know, uh, eight to 10 a year. And then, um, and we'll see how as capital comes in, because we're actually, you know, raising capital for the fund, uh, but we are dealing directly with about 20 companies a year through the business equity initiative. Yeah, so about you know, about about half of those companies are, are ready and looking for capital. And Glenn, uh, if it weren't for, as you try to, I guess, assess the, the difference in the impact you're making, um, I'm assuming that for some of these, if it weren't for the foundation and the business equity initiative, some of them might not make it at all. I hate to say that because we don't want to be, we don't have that responsibility <laughs> on our shoulders, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look at, I mean, you know, I'm sure Tracy can say this, there's a, there's a, what entrepreneurs, what they're, our goal to do is, is smile and say, everything's great. <laughs> Not always the case, right? A lot of things happening behind the, behind the, uh, the closed doors there, you know, and, and we're not experts in everything, right? Like, you know, cause we have to be experts in marketing with experts in operations, you know, finance, you know, talent, you know, so we help support where you're not so good at and um and strengthen and so yeah so we, we our goal is you still to be around <laughs> still be in existence which is a you know is, is a sign of success but also and also be growing uh at, uh at the same rate well you've both been so successful each in your own way I'm curious is there a tracy is there a leadership philosophy that you have um and you started out as somebody who loves to cook now you're managing a business as well um, and you've got employees and you're mentoring others as probably as you were mentored. What, what's your kind of leadership style and strategy and philosophy? And, and are there, and are there, I guess, and are there parts of the job that you, where you feel like, gosh, I wish as the leader, I didn't have to have that responsibility on top of everything else oh, I'm doing every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as, as a leader, you have to kind of be open to doing anything and everything. And I think that openness um, requires a lot of positive thinking. Um, and that's probably some of the mentorship that I really received from my mother, who's an entrepreneur. And again, she said, you know, go work for accomplished folks that you'll find mentorship and um, that you'll continue to develop a relationship even after you work with them. Go learn from them, but develop your own style. 
and develop your own your own voice and also learn what not to do right cuz not all the time will you be learning oh okay take notes like i you know i need to do this just like martine did it i need to do that just like martine did it because for martine it worked well for him in that way but for him and for his business and for his team but i had and for oh yeah the same thing and those were very different styles and in you know pastry school very different style of how the french chefs were you know managing the students or the assistants in in class i was just reading a um kind of a business memoir by a business leader named ray dalio and he's uh one of his pieces of advice was create a culture where it's okay to make mistakes, but unacceptable not to learn from them, <laughs> which I thought was a really good balance because you know you want that culture where people are willing to take risks and innovate, and you know maybe they won't always work out, but you don't want them to make the same mistake over and over and over again. So, how about you, Glenn, in terms of leadership uh, strategy and style and philosophy? Oh, I, I love that answer from Tracy. I, I think from me, my answer would be it's evolving. <laughs> it's always evolving. We're always learning. I mean, I think you know coming out of a food service environment, you know, for, for decades, you know, it's, it's this pressure. I mean, I, it's, I don't, it's not the, if you, if you haven't worked in the industry, you don't, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to explain, but it's, you know, there's always a deadline and deadline is like in a few minutes, <laughs> you know, so there's a certain leadership energy around that. And so I've, I've, I've been known to guy, the guy that like gets things done, you know, that type of thing. At the same time, I guess my, well, my more aspirational quality and I'm working on is, you know, deep listening, you really, you know, understanding the the world around you, the people you're working with, what motivates them, and to get different views, different opinions, and uh, and then you know, and then and then, kind of put that back into where you're going as an organization. Um, and I do think, um, you know, you know, part of part of being a good leader is having good people around you. <laughs> so I, I'm making good decisions. I know around you know really who's out there uh, helping making decisions for you or you know as, on the on the behalf of what you put together. So. Uh, we've been blessed and uh, very proud of the team we have, and and I don't, you know, I think it would be interesting to ask them <laughs> to Tracy's point what their opinion right, is. Right, <laughs> right. We're gonna have to wrap up soon, but tell us what's um, what's next for each of you. Um, Pegu's still very young, so there may not be a uh, an immediate what's next. But how do you think about um, what's around the corner for you, Tracy? Yeah, I think evolution is very important, um, and I definitely think we are, you know, very clearly now starting to communicate why it is that we exist here as, you know, a restaurant versus, you know, year one, year two, everyone's interested in what are you cooking? What are you cooking? What are the dishes? Why should I come to the restaurant? Like, what should I eat? It's all about the what, and I think now it's all about the why, and I've always been you know, coming from the why, but, you know, PR told me that everyone wants to know what. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, but now can we go into the why? And I think that, you know, really generates purpose and intent for folks. I think that's key in um, keeping good people around and keeping them growing. Um, so my focus is really on how do I grow individuals so that they can evolve with us as we continue this restaurant because we want to be around not just for two years, but for the next 10, the next 20 years. And how do we do that? And it's very important to, like I said, listen to the community, to the feedback, um, so that our menu is evolving, our service, our hospitality, our training programs, but that individuals, you know, I'm trained to do everything in the restaurant. 
how many other people in the restaurant are trained to do that? Yeah, so it, it feels like you've got to find a way, and I think all leaders do, to um, make sure you stay connected back to your own original passion, right? That that doesn't, you don't let that um, fade or, or diminish, but also that people have a chance to touch, you know, their own passion through what they're doing. Because, you know, if, if it's going to be sustainable, if it's more than just something you do for a year or two, I think it's got to be rooted in that. And it sounds like you're finding a way to do that. Yeah, we're finally being able to roll out what it is. You know, we, we've rolled out the food. We now understand, you know, who is the audience, who is the community, and we're taking feedback from them. And now there's this whole collaboration component. And I think people have seen, you know, kind of inklings of that in year one and year two, where we do events together, where we, you know, talk about, okay, who is Love and Spoonfuls and why have we chosen during the month of March to, you know, help raise awareness and raise money for Love and Spoonfuls. There's just so much more collaboration you know, on deck for us. And that's essentially why I started the restaurant was because I'm most interested, you know, in the collaboration that brings together the food and the community. Well, on our podcast last week was with Ashley Stanley, the founder of Love and Spoonfuls, which is a great food rescue organization here in the Boston area. And a lot of what you said uh, sounded like a version of what Glenn was saying in terms of listening, right? In terms of like just really taking what... uh, was around you were saying. So uh, for you, Glenn, what's next? Yeah, I want to uh, phrase that Tracy mentioned, culture and community. I think, you know, really uh, that's where you have real change, systematic change, if you can really start adjusting the culture. And I think, you know, when we talk about Boston here, where we're, we're doing this podcast, how do we really get all players in the space of really uh, leaning in around uh, greater equity, right? So we just happen to be focusing on the business side. So, and, and we all have a, we all play a role in that, right? Whether you're an investor or whether you're a consumer, so we're excited about, um, you know, strengthening entrepreneurial class and, and really, con- you know, learning from what we've learned so far with the Business Equity Initiative and getting better. There's a potential to bring it to other cities. Uh, so that's all exciting. I am very excited to say that kind of fresh off the press, but we are having serious conversations at my old job, <laughs> City Fresh Foods, of broadening ownership. So opening up ownership to the folks who helped build the company over the last couple of decades. So that's very exciting to that's me. Pretty- yeah. yeah, and it's and in a lot of ways, it's like it's a it's demonstrating. Hey, guys, you know, we, you know. By the way, you know, privately tightly held companies, it is a sometimes it's a smart exeter strategy or succession plan too, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're we're looking at uh, coming out of the into the public as we as we figure this thing out. And we didn't talk to him today, and I know we're running out of time. Is around some of the urban farming stuff. So you know, yeah, yeah. How, no, tell us about that. How that's all linked in. So you know, first off, we'd love to supply you. You know, get 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 you guys on the list and get some of this. Uh, hyper-locally grown stuff coming to your restaurant, Tracy. Um, uh, you know, we're very proud to be moving. Uh, the Urban Farming Institute just recently moved into the uh, uh, 5 o'clock farm, which is very exciting. So we have a, a base there to really kind of spread this kind of uh, um, approach around, hey, how do we get more of our own folks growing their own food, essentially, right? And, 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 and you know, we have a lot of folks that come from the land, you know, from the south and from the islands. That's all exciting. It's all part of this culture piece, right? And what, what is being grown with your urban farming? Well, I mean, we do a lot of greens because of the space yep. issue, but, you know, you name it, right? Uh, tomatoes, root crops. I mean, we're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, it's amazing what you can do on a small plot of land. I mean, a lot of the gardens out there are shaking their heads, I'm assuming. So um, what we're trying to do is we're showing, we're, showing, we're proving intensive practices to even do more 
on smaller spaces and protecting the soil in the process. Okay, so we may have made a match here on Add Passion and Steve. I go. hope so. Um, okay, save the hardest question for last. Uh, since we've got a lot of foodies that listen, if you had to pick a place other than your own restaurant that people should know about, uh, that's a go-to place for you when um, you just want to get a good bite to eat, what should we know about? Might not be on everybody's radar screen. I'll do a shout out to uh, to, to Mita, who's out fairly new in the South End. What's uh, it called? Uh, Mita. Mita. Uh, yeah, Doug, okay. uh, Chef Douglas over there, and uh, one of the, I, you know, one of the only uh, African American chefs, uh, do, you know, owner and uh, operator. So, um, uh, very talented chef. Excellent. Uh, what would you pick, Tracy? Gosh, I mean, I eat all the time at Cafe Sushi. Everyone loves and knows Cafe Sushi. Yeah. Um, but if I had to pick somewhere a little lesser known, uh, actually, right near Pagu, where I've been kind of hiding out. <laughs> And I've kept it a secret for a reason because no one can find me there. <laughs> um, so just close to Craigie, there's a former Beijing Tokyo space that's now uh, Maze, M-A-E apostrophe S. M-A-E, okay. Yeah, and it's Thai food, a little bit Vietnamese, a little bit of Chinese influence, but mostly Thai. And my sister-in-law is Thai and has taught me a lot of Thai cooking in the past two years. So I really appreciate this is a husband and wife small business there. And it's delicious. I've gone two days in a row already, and you know maybe I'll pop in today. <laughs> but okay, these are great recommendations. That's where you'll find me. No one knows about it. <laughs> Maze and Mita, excellent. Tracy Chang, uh, congratulations on Pegu. So happy to have you on Add Passion and Stir. Uh, Pegu's I know got a, uh, a Twitter and an Instagram and uh, probably a website as well. Uh, that people can learn more about. Uh, but really, thank you for being with us. And when Lloyd, you wear a lot of hats, right? At, at Eastern Bank, the Business Equity uh, Initiative, uh, Urban Farm Institute, City Fresh Foods, really inspiring what you're contributing and building in the community here. So thanks for being on Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Add Passion and Stir. Uh, please take a look at website uh, so that you can find previous episodes and you can rank us or rate us or subscribe or share with your friends. Um, I want to th thank the folks that make this possible. Our producer, uh, Paul Woodle, who we know is Woody, Cybersound Studios here in Boston, which is where we record and it's a great place to, to do these kinds of things. And our team at Share Our Strength, Kelly Griffin and Debbie Shore and the, the whole team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.